Welcome to Theatetus, the podcast that turns thinking into an adventure. I'm your host, Justin, just an average guy with an insatiable curiosity about how we know what we know. Join me as I explore the power of thought and uncover the hidden truths of this world. This is Theatetus. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Theatetus podcast. So today, I realized that I haven't, I don't think I've articulated why I want to talk about critical thinking, why it's important. I know I talked about my experience in the first episode, but I didn't really explain that in a way about like why that should matter to you and why that should matter to my listeners. So that's what I want to cover today. And to help me do that, I've invited someone to be my co-host that is very good at calling me out when I'm not making sense and that helps me to articulate my abstract and theoretical ideas and thoughts into real practical things that we can use in life. And that is my amazing wife, Hannah. Hi, everyone. Hannah, you want to say anything to introduce yourself? Maybe just that I've learned a lot about critical thinking in the last 10 years of being married to Justin. He's helped me learn how to look at the world in a new light in a positive way. Um, he's really helped me on my own intellectual journey in, in a lot of ways. And I'm just excited to be here to talk about this topic. I think it's really important. And without it in our society, it creates a lot of problems. So I think it's really valuable if you can take the time today to to listen and it's it's going to be something that is a positive influence on your life. Yeah, I'm excited to have Hannah on here. Um, I agree with everything she said. And Hannah's superpower is really, she she's so good at taking diverse thoughts and ideas and helping people reconcile those between each other. She's, she's amazing at it. And so that's kind of what I, I asked her to come on and do as my co-host today is to kind of be the stand-in for you, the audience, in helping me to explain things in a way that's going to make sense to you. Because sometimes I can start rolling and going off on something and it just, it's making sense in my head, but nobody can follow what I'm saying. So essentially I'm here to reel him back in and keep this on track. Yes. Um, make it make sense. And <laughs> yes, all good things. Yep. Also, Hannah's very, very wise. She, she will never admit it to other people, but because she's so good at taking ideas and abstract things and figuring out, okay, why, what does this mean in real life? It gives her a ton of wisdom. And so not only do I want her to be here to keep me on track, I and I want you to weigh in and to share your thoughts because I think they're you have really good, important things to say, and I think that my audience would benefit from hearing that. So thank you. That's a really nice compliment. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so first things first, let's talk about epistemology and about critical thinking quickly. For those who don't, who haven't heard that term epistemology before, maybe they haven't listened to your other episodes. Do you want to just quickly define that oh, for people? Good call. So epistemology is the theory of knowledge. It's the study of knowledge. How do we know fact from opinion? 
we might believe certain things, but that doesn't mean that they're, they're actual things that are true in reality. So how do we distinguish that knowledge from just mere opinion about something, a mere thought? So that's awesome. what epistemology is. Okay. And you can see how with that definition, that could tie in to critical thinking. Where critical thinking, the purpose of critical thinking is to figure out what is true. Critical thinking is really a tool of epistemology to get to an understanding of what is true. So that's what uh, I want to focus on today is why does critical thinking matter? Why does, why does knowing what is true matter? And why is critical thinking personally my tool of choice to do that? And, you know, for, for most great thinkers in history, they landed on some form of critical thinking as being an important way of figuring out what is true. So that's what I want the discussion to revolve around today. Be forewarned. It's not going to feel just nice and linear like, oh, okay, so we're going to talk about this piece of critical thinking and this piece and this piece. I'm going to start at the very like foundations, the basics that might not feel like you might be feeling like, what does this have to do with critical thinking? But I promise we're going to build on that and we're going to get there to where this all comes together and makes sense as one coherent argument for critical thinking. So I, I, I think it'll be really interesting along the way. Don't tune out because I don't think it'll be boring, but it's going to, if you ever, if you, at some point you start feeling like, oh, what, is, how, what does it have to do with critical thinking again? Just hang on. We're going to, I'm going to make the connections. Basically, it's going to give you a very holistic idea of what critical thinking is and allow you to see the whole picture. Yep. What critical thinking is and why it matters. Yep. Why we need it. I want to add here, if you are nervous at all about these ideas disrupting your religious beliefs, um, I want you to make sure that you listen to the end of this. Like Justin said, we are, we're going to be following a whole circle here and I think you will find some resolution at the end of this podcast as we talk through how this applies in a religious aspect um, and how it can actually help you be a better, better religious follower if you apply these critical thinking tools and methodologies into your life. Okay, so let's dive in. Unless, do you have anything else to say, Hannah, before we dive in? Nope. Okay, let's do it. Okay, so with critical thinking... We're trying to answer the question, what is true? Okay, that's the purpose of critical thinking. So, Hannah, off the top of your head, what are some of the ways that we can figure out what is true? What, what are some of the ways that you think through that? Or that, you know, my mis listeners might be thinking about, what, what are the common ways that we figure out things that are true? So, top of my head, the first thing I think of is the scientific method. You know, hopefully everyone learned a little bit about that in school. I think a lot of people will use anecdotal evidence in their personal lives to decide what they think is true. They'll just look at the world around them and, you know, say, I know a person that this happened to, and so that must be reality. But I know that's one way that people see. Learn what's true. I think gathering data and analyzing that. It's another way that we can gather good information, try and find the closest thing to truth. What do you have? I would throw in there 
a common, I mean, when you talk about truth for a lot of people, the first thing that comes to mind is like religious or spiritual truths, mm -hmm. right? Yep, for sure. And the way that people come to a knowledge of truth about that is they have some kind of transcendent experience. Mm -hmm. They communicate with God or some kind of divinity for them. And that experience makes them feel that, you know, a certain thing is true, that yeah. God exists, that there's life after death. They, they have these experiences where they, they feel that, that confirmation that that's true. And I think that's, that's an important thing that we all have as humans for helping us process the world as well. So, yeah. no, those are good. I, I had, I had them written down. I had them written basically the same, same things you said. So our senses and empirical evidence where we observe something mm -hmm. and we learn from those senses what what is reality and what isn't mm -hmm. which i would i would lump that in with the scientific method because that's what the scientific method is all about of testing things making some kind of observation mm -hmm. whether it's through our own like immediate senses of sight sound or it's you know some kind of instrument is measuring something that we can observe and we, we are seeing what happens there. So I would lump that in as just being kind of a broader view of how we rely on our senses. Mm -hmm. That's a way we determine what's true. It gives us empirical evidence. Empirical just means like testable evidence. And then the second one is reason and logic. So I might not be able to test like or, or directly observe I, I've never been to the moon, and so I don't know that the moon is just a weird projection in the sky. Like, I don't have any physical evidence from my own senses that the moon is a sphere out in space. What I'm relying on is reason and logic, the arguments of others, and I follow that reason and logic to the, the what seems like the most logical conclusion. And you mentioned, like, analyzing data. That's really what that I would categorize that in. That's a way of using reason and logic to come to a conclusion. So maybe I don't directly observe how every American, how much cheese they consume a year, but I can look at some data that where they self-report or purchasing patterns and I can make some inferences from that data about, okay, looks like Americans consume X amount of cheese a year, plus or minus so much, you know? So reason and logic would be number two. The third one I would say is our own personal experiences. That can include matters of faith, where we've had a personal, you know, internal experience with the divine, where we feel like we've had a truth confirmed to us. But yeah, I would say personal experiences are a third way that, that we decide on what's true. We could go down a whole bunch of rabbit holes on different methods for deciding what's true, deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning look at probabilities. Um, if you're interested in that stuff, go read uh, John Locke's An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. He goes into all of that, and it's a fantastic read. Anyway, but beyond those three, like I think those are the three like main ones that most people would think of. Can you think of any others, Hannah? Like Any other ideas on how do we decide what's true? I think that's a good synopsis of the, the three main ones. Okay, so just so we can remember these, let's let's do a quick review of them. The first one was through our senses. The second one was through reasoning. And the third one was our own internal experiences. 
what most people would think of as faith. Uh, I think that's those are our three that we're going to go forward with. So I don't I don't want to give the impression that I think that we need to do away with any one of those. I think they're all important and all good. But here's the issue. What happens when I have to make a decision with others or I have to collaborate with other people to figure out what is true? Whether that's if, if we go. So let's take a step back in time, not in our modern world, because that's not where our brains evolved. Our brains evolved in a different world, a very primitive world. Back in that world, when human beings were, you know, let's put ourselves, we're part of a little clan of the, the earliest Homo sapiens, okay, in Africa. And we have to, we kind of team up, right? Me and you. Mm-hmm. because we realize that it's beneficial for us to work together in groups. So it's not as easy for us to, for, for predators to attack us. So we team up. We have to decide where are we going to go to forage for food? There's two different directions. We can travel to different um, foraging grounds and we have to make a choice. We know that it's, it's beneficial for us to work together but we have to choose which way we're going to go. How do we do that? I think that's a really good question because if you're looking back at those three main ways of coming to truth or the best solution, you know, if you're both using different methods, then that could get really messy. So right. I think it's a good question to ask. Yep. Exactly. If so so like let's walk through the first one like the the empirical evidence where mm-hmm. we're we're looking at our senses. I'm looking at okay there's predators tracks over in this area or I'm looking at rain clouds there over in this direction and so I'm seeing those things and I'm thinking okay this is this is what I'm basing my decision on. Now maybe you are looking at okay I know that last year even though it looked like there might be more predators, when we took the risk and we went to this other area, we actually found more food there. So I think we should do that again. And we're at odds. Like we can't make a decision together. So how do we figure out what is true? Which, which direction is going to be the best, is the best option for finding food? How do we make a decision there? Seriously, like if we were put in that situation, what do you, how do you think that plays out? Or well, me, me, you, and maybe like a few others. Like we're in this others. little group okay. of humans. Okay. Well, I think organically what would natural, naturally happen is you typically have one person that kind of becomes the leader and the dominant person in that group that is either organizing the discussion. And, and you can see this if you get in a group, you know, with other individuals currently, you know, this is just kind of a human nature that, that someone generally will take the lead in that group. If it's going to be a successful group, right? Someone will generally take the lead and they'll coordinate the discussion. They'll, you know, either make the decision. It sounds like a school group project. <laughs> yes. Those are the worst, but Yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure early homo sapiens probably felt the same way (laughs) when trying to make these decisions when their lives depended on it. I'm glad that my life never depended on um, my school group projects. But yeah, generally someone takes that lead and 
will make the decision or they will be the mediator in the discussion to help everyone arrive at a, a conclusion together. Yep. Yep. I thought I, that in my experience, that's exactly what I would expect to now. That's not a given that we would have evolved that way. Like, I think there's animal species that they don't do that. They don't say, okay, this one's the leader. Like they go different directions or like, so why, why did humans do it this way? Like, well, I think, I mean, maybe it was more likely that they would have either gone different directions and they didn't all survive, you know, so they got kind of picked off or one of the, them starved. Then you have natural you know. selection in action. Right. Yeah. Right. Or um, maybe they got angry with each other and they did each other in, you know, right. but, that's probably true. So that um, doesn't happen with humans. We don't get no, angry at never. each other when we disagree. No, never. But um, yeah, so I think, you know, that's why I said if that group were to be successful, a successful group would usually have some leader kind of rise up to kind of help them navigate as a group in order to progress and not get killed off one by one or to starve or whatever. Yep. I I 100% agree. So I do want to make one quick distinction before we we keep going on with this story of our our little group of (laughs) homeostasis, homo sapiens in Africa. I, I want to make this distinction that we... When we look at animal species, because um, because we're going back to like early humans, right? We're we're just barely evolving from from being like more in this this animal brain to we're we're getting more cognitive thinking going on, mm-hmm. right? Cognitive thinking it's kind of redundant, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Where we're we're actually reasoning. Yeah. Where that whole situation I described, where I'm looking at the rain clouds and the animal tracks, and you're reasoning about okay, what did we did the year before, like. There's all of that, but we also have an instinctual part of our brains. So maybe one of the people in our group is seeing a certain predator's tracks and they have had run-ins with that predator and their brain has, you know, made some connections where they instinctively, they jump into fight or flight and like, absolutely not. We are not going that way. I'm terrified of that animal. I'm not doing it like instinctual. Mm-hmm. So we, we have these different reasoning or these different things going on in our brains and <laughs> I, I think the the main point is none of them are that reliable for actually determining what is true like we can't just rely on all of us rely on our senses to tell us the same thing right because we're going to come to different conclusions we can't all just rely on our our abstract reasoning abilities about okay this is what we did last year here's the the annual pattern that we should follow like because we might come to different conclusions. We can't just rely on our instincts because our instincts are, while they, 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 they evolved to serve us in like keeping us safe from danger, that fight or flight response kind of thing, they are not based on reason. Like yeah. look at people that suffer from anxiety today or you know that are, have, have a, a chronic stress response to things that really aren't a threat. Like it's not based on reason. Right. So... We couldn't rely not to, on not to discredit people with anxiety. That is oh, yeah. a real thing and really be hard to work through in your life. But yeah, um, I, think, I think the key to learning about anxiety is when you're recognizing that 
I'm not actually in physical danger at this moment and I've got to help my brain learn how to work through, you know, these assumed threats that, you know, aren't, aren't actually going to harm me physically. Yeah. I'm glad you called that out. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the point I was making is that our brain is actually kind of short circuiting right. itself with anxiety that it's, it's something we're suffering from where it's we've evolved mm -hmm. to have our brain do that, but it's causing problems for us. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm not putting the, the onus on anybody with anxiety that there's something wrong with him. I, I, I suffer from anxiety. I've <laughs> had several difficulties Same. with it. So, so glad we just called that out. But yeah, like I think it's just when we put ourselves in that situation and we see like what would a group of humans do, we can quickly acknowledge that these different methods for determining what's true just in our own brains, they work really well individually. But when you get a group together, like collectively trying to make a decision, it's just, it's a mess. Like it, we, it's because those tools, when they're just at an individual level, they actually aren't built for figuring out what is actually true. They're built for either keeping us alive or they're built to persuade others. Here, I, I want to read a quote from a book that I highly recommend this book. It's, it's one of my favorite reads. It's by Jonathan Rauch, and it's uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, and where he goes into how do we know what's true in a, in, in a pluralistic society, like where there's lots of different diverse kinds of opinions, like kind of like the situation we're describing here. How can we all come to a common understanding of what's true? And he really explores that and the systems that we've developed to deal with that. One of the things he says when he's talking about this time period in early human evolution, he says that there's a potential snag in our reasoning abilities. He says, the implication is that evolution selects not for the ability to reason in a way which leads to truth necessarily, but for the ability to reason in a way that persuades. Reason evolved, and then he quotes uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist. He says, reason evolved not to help us find truth, but to help us engage in arguments, persuasion, and manipulation in the context of discussions with other people. So reason, I, I think, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I tend to be a pretty rational person. I, I love reason and rational thinking, but we have to acknowledge that reason, it doesn't always get us to what's actually true. Reason evolved to help us persuade, not to actually get to what's true. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, perfect sense. So like in this example that we're talking about, and we talked about that leader who would help them be successful they might not actually make the choice that sent them to the most the best food sources because that was true but maybe kept them alive because they were able to talk everybody into doing the same thing and not killing each other yeah exactly yep and that's so that's the trait that that gets naturally selected mm -hmm. as the leader that's able to persuade everybody exactly and so we can't just rely on reason as much as we might want to. We can't just rely on reason to help us figure out what is true. It's an important tool, but we can't rely on individual reason to figure out what is true. I think another good term to that you could tie to reason is maybe common sense. 
because I think that's the term we use more often when we are talking about this in our everyday life. So we say, oh, we know this is true because it's just common sense, right? And I think that's what Justin's talking about here when he's talking about reason. Am I right? Is that what you're talking about when you're saying reason? I mean, and that's an aspect of it, a collective reason. But it's also not just common sense, but like people can talk themselves into things that wouldn't fall within the realm of common sense. Yeah. Do you want to like describe like what you're saying by reason a little more? Maybe elaborate on that to, just so that we're all on the same page when you're... Yeah. Talking about reason. So when I say reason, I just mean our thinking abilities to come to a conclusion. Like I I can sit and think about, oh, what's a good example? I might notice that there's a problem with one of my kids and I'm trying to figure out what is the root cause of that problem? Why is this kid, maybe he's acting up in school and I'm trying to reason through reason Meaning mm-hmm. that I'm looking at all of the the, be, the actual behavior that's happening. And then I'm looking at, okay, what are the patterns at home that I'm seeing? And then I'm looking at, okay, what what's my history with this child? What do I know about this child's health? And <clears throat> taking all of these things I know about and putting them together to come to some conclusion. That's what reason is. Right. And yeah, I think that the point that we're making is just that even though that's a powerful tool for our brains, it doesn't mean that it always leads to what's actually true. It actually evolved as a tool to help us to persuade others. And and now I think we often use it to persuade ourselves mm-hmm. into the things we want to believe are true. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's important to note with reasoning, I think a lot of the times why it doesn't work the way we want to find exactly what is true is because I think a lot of the time we're missing some piece of information. We don't have all of the the information that we need to really come to an accurate conclusion, which I think is nearly impossible with most things to really gather every bit of information. Like for the example agree. with our with our you know, if we're talking about a kid that we're trying to, you know, diagnose basically what's happening with this child and why they're acting up. This is not based on a real life example, by no, the way. No, it's not. It's just you know <laughs> our kids are all perfect. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Nothing, nothing wrong. So if you're looking at this example with one of the kids and if you're missing a piece of information, you know, maybe, maybe that kid's being bullied at school and they're not telling you about it, you know, because they're embarrassed about it or some other reason, you know, you're missing that really important piece of information and might be looking at all of these other things and saying, oh, well, they, maybe they're, I don't know. There might be some kind of genetic yeah, trait maybe... that we have no idea about because we can't see their DNA. Like we, we haven't analyzed their DNA and their genetic code to figure out there's this certain trait that they have that's causing this or, you know, s- stuff like that. Yeah. So you could easily misdiagnose the problem. There's an infinite number of things that we don't and honestly can't know. Right. So I think I think that's a key part of why... Um, this reasoning doesn't always lead to truth and why it can't be fully relied on. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we've we've looked at how maybe our, our reasoning abilities and then our senses can lead us astray. Let's look at the third one of personal experiences, uh, internal experiences, faith. So let's go back to our African homo sapien friends and... 
so they're in this situation and one of them decides it could be the leader or it could be several of them they decide let's ask the shaman yeah well yes yes exactly or the leader is the shaman right yep yep let's ask the shaman to go and make a sacrifice to the gods or do some kind of ritual to the gods to figure out what is the will of the gods and in a way they're able to outsource this decision to you know the gods now notice the, the way that worked, we, we immediately jump to it because our brains know that this is how it's supposed to work, that we ask the shaman or the leader mm-hmm. to do it. But if every single person in the group is going individually and having their ritual or, as we would put it today, we're praying to God to find out what, what God's will is, or they're going through their ritual back then to figure out what is the will of the gods um, or the ancestors, uh, it, that that's what most... Um, scientists believe now is that we originally uh the like the original way that ancient humans uh viewed religion is they were worshiping their ancestors but mm, interesting yeah if you're willing to take the dive into a uh, a book that explores religion as a an evolutionary product um i recommend breaking the spell by daniel dennett it's interesting anyway that's that's where he talks about this so yeah, we, we jumped straight to that assumption that we asked the shaman, but if everybody goes individually, there is almost a 100% chance that we all come back together and we had different answers. Yeah. And that, that applies to today, too. Like, when we have to function as a group and make collective decision decisions, internal personal internal experiences are not a good way to figure out what is true because... I might have some experience where I'm convinced, hey, X is true. And I I, I, I got that answer from, from God or, you know, from meditation or whatever. And then you have the, you go do the exact same thing and you come back and say, my answer was why? And I'm absolutely convinced it's why. If you talk to a member of the LDS church about their testimony today, their testimony of their faith, their belief in their faith, they're going to have certainty that their faith is right. If you talk to a very devout Baptist down south, they're going to have very the, the same thing, a conviction that they're right. So this, this you know, I'm just going to summarize it as faith. This faith-based way of determining what is true is just not real. It's great on an individual level. I don't want anybody yeah. to get the idea that I'm saying, no, don't do this. You won't find out what's true. Like, go ahead and do that individually. But you can't take those personal individual answers you get and project them onto others and expect others to believe that same thing because it was a personal experience that you had and others can very easily go do the exact same thing you did and get a completely different answer. So why are you right and they're not? That's one of my biggest gripes about the way people approach religion today is absolutely go have these these experiences with the, the divine and get your own answers but when you try to hold others to those answers that doesn't make sense epistemically it, it just it doesn't it, it's an epistemic dead end well and besides that it's not a way to actually progress as humans you know if you apply that back to this group in africa you know like how are they going to get along you know if they're all coming to different answers and 
I think it gets even more complex. Say you have two different groups that are maybe, maybe they're, they are relying on their shamans or their leaders, but they start to clash about who they think is right. You know, one's following this shaman, this one's following this other shaman. They start to clash, but they have to share a territory. You know, they're not going to get along if they're all relying on what their shaman says or what their own personal beliefs are. And so I think what Justin's trying to say here is if we want to get along as a society where we all have different opinions, and that's what we want, right? We want a society where we have the freedom to believe different things and to think different things. We don't want to be set in this structured society where we're told what to think and what to do and how to act and how to believe. And everyone's expected to conform. Right. We want that freedom. And in order to have that freedom, we have to be able to live in harmony and respect each other's right to have their own beliefs and to believe different things and to think different things. The short term for what Hannah just described is a pluralistic society. And if so, if I use that term later on in this this discussion, like that's what I'm referring to is where we have a society where we respect that each of us can have our own internal experiences and opinions and we we don't clash and fight over it and that none no one of single one of those is enforced on everyone unless it's you know going to harm another Uh, we could go down a whole rabbit hole there on when when it's okay for the the group to force others to conform but go listen to the podcast with isabel yeah there you go i think you guys dive down that hole don't you yeah we do a little bit Okay, so there, there's the, those three ways of figuring out what is true. They're all important. There's a reason that we evolved with those. They, if we didn't have any one of those, like it, we, we wouldn't be able to function as humans. They're all important. I don't want this to sound like they're not important. They, they keep us alive. They help us figure things out in our daily lives. The only point I'm trying to make is that they are not a sure way to get to what is actually true for, for us collectively as a species or even as a group. They're, they're, they're very flawed when it comes to determining what is true. They really evolved as ways for us to, to persuade and get consensus among the group. There's, there's, actually, there's even research that backs this up. This isn't just like some you know, philosophical opinion, like Jonathan Haidt that I mentioned earlier, he's a social psychologist. He's written entire books about this and how I, I recommend his book, The Righteous Mind. Great book. But he's, he's written in there about how they've done experiments. He's designed and performed experiments testing how much people, um, how much their, their reasoning abilities are actually based on finding truth and how they actually lead them to what something that's actually true versus how often those reasoning abilities are actually meant to persuade them to something that they they're wanting to believe or some social norm that they know they need to adopt. So I wanted to actually read a, an example. So he did this experiment with, uh, where was it at? I forget where it was. I think it was at a, at his school where he teaches, which I think is NYU. But he designed this experiment where they presented the 
people that came in that volunteered for the experiment, they presented them with this story and then they questioned them about the story afterward. So here's the story that he presented them with. It says, Julie and Mark, who are sister and brother, are traveling together in France. They are both on summer vacation from college. One night, they are staying alone in a cabin near the beach. They decide that it would be interesting and fun if they tried making love. At the very least, it would be a new experience for each of them. Julie is already taking birth control pills, but Mark uses a condom too, just to be safe. They both enjoy it, but they decide not to do it again. They keep that night as a special secret between them, which makes them feel even closer to each other. So what do you think about this? Was it wrong for them to have sex? What do you think, Hannah? Ew. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yeah, you had the... Ugh. that. That's that's the reaction that they expected and, and that the almost every one of their uh, test subjects gave. Is, ew, ew. Yeah. That is wrong. That is so wrong. So... <laughs> they ask, why is it wrong? Let me ask you, Hannah, why why was that wrong? Every reason. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> um, because it just is, I don't know, <laughs> because they're brother and sister and... Does that make it wrong? I guess. Is it harming anyone? Um condoms and birth control fail sometimes so i guess that, that makes it i mean kind of risky with but a, a single one of those and it's risky but the two of them together it's virtually impossible that they're gonna get pregnant okay well i didn't expect the podcast to go this route <laughs> <laughs> but um you should have warned me about this what were you doing uh, well, I just want to show how hard it is to answer. So here's, Yeah, well, let, you did I'll, a good job. I'm I'll give, feeling very uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, I'll let you off the hook. So here's a transcript of one of their interviews with a, a test subject after after they read the, read the incest story. The experimenter says, So what do you think about this? Was it wrong for Julie and Mark to have sex? The subject yeah, I think it's totally wrong to have sex. You know, because I'm pretty religious and I just think incest is wrong anyway, but I don't know. Experimenter, what's wrong with incest, would you say? Subject, um, the whole idea of, well, I've heard, I don't even know if this is true, but in the case, if the girl did get pregnant, the kids become deformed most of the time in, in cases like that. Experimenter, but they used a condom and birth control pills. Subject. Oh, okay. Yeah, you did say that. Experimenter. So there's no way they're going to have a kid. Subject. Well, I guess the safest sex is abstinence, but, um, uh, um, I don't know. I just think that's wrong. <laughs> I don't know. What, what did you ask me? Experimenter. Was it wrong for them to have sex? Subject. Yeah, I think it's wrong experimenter right i'm trying to find out why what you think is wrong with it subject okay um well let's see let me think about this uh how old were they experimenter they were college age around 20 or so subject oh oh looks disappointed i don't know i just it's just not something you're brought up to do it's just not well i mean i wasn't i assume that most people aren't 
I just think that you shouldn't. I, I don't, I guess my reason is just that um, you're not brought up to do it. You don't see it. It's not, uh, I don't think it's accepted. That's pretty much it. Experimenter. You wouldn't say anything you're not brought up to see is wrong, would you? For example, if you're not brought up to see women working outside the home, would you say that makes it wrong for women to work? Subject. Uh, well, oh gosh, this is hard. I really, uh, I mean, there's just no way I could change my mind, but I just don't know how to, how to show what I'm feeling, what I feel about it. It's crazy. So. Oh my gosh. Well, I agree with that guy. <laughs> yeah. So it's here's here's what Jonathan Hyatt. Right. Here's what Jonathan Hyatt has to say about it. He says, in this transcript and in many others, it's obvious that people were making a moral judgment immediately and emotionally. Reasoning was merely the servant of the passions. And when the servant failed to find any good arguments, the master did not change his mind. So earlier in the book, Jonathan Hyatt, he he talks about how David Hume the philosopher, he had written Reason is the Slave of the Passions, which was kind of controversial at the time. And other great thinkers, um, John Locke, uh, Descartes, uh, others, they really disagreed with that. But research has borne that out, that reason is the slave of the passions, meaning that we first make these intuitive judgments initially, and then our reasoning kicks in to justify this intuition. And that's what he was trying to show in that experiment where he found something that was just taboo, morally taboo, that everybody would go ick. But he he made sure to cut off all of the reasons that we would find it morally wrong and then ask people, why is this morally wrong? And when people could and, and just show that like people made an emotional, intuitive judgment about it. And then they were searching for reasons to try to figure out why it was wrong. They knew it was wrong. They mm-hmm. felt it was wrong. It's just gross. That's that's Ew. just wrong. But you can't articulate why. And that just that really shows that bears out what David Hume taught that reason is the slave of the passions. And so yeah, I just I wanted to show that that experimentally, and that's not the only experiment. Like it's there's a whole book. Read the righteous mind. He he goes over it in so many different ways. Also, Daniel Kahneman, uh, read his book Thinking Fast and Slow. He he shows the same thing. That often our reasoning and our judgments are they're based on emotional, intuitive judgments that we've already made, and then we're just finding reasons to justify those judgments. So, I just wanted to to show that our ability to figure out what is true, again research has shown that it is not a good method for actually getting to truth and what is true. It's actually built to persuade, even persuade ourselves, where we we have a norm that it's expected, a social norm that you don't have sex with your sibling. And then we have all these reasons. You heard Hannah do it where she's like, well, they could have a kid. And like we, we then our reasoning kicks in to find reasons to justify that emotion, that, that intuition that says, Ooh, that's wrong. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think. Sorry to put you on the spot, but I wanted to show that (laughs) like in a a real time reaction. I still stand by what I said. (laughs) So before we jump on from 
that lovely topic. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, you know, my brain's still reaching for ideas why this is wrong. Because, you know, I, I, I do feel like it's just bad. Like, you just shouldn't have incest. Well, I agree. I hope that that's not coming through that i'm like yeah this is fine <laughs> no i agree <laughs> I it's gross <laughs> it's totally repugnant yeah but what i'm sitting here thinking is you know like jumping to religious reasons of most people i know would say well you know god said not to have any sexual relationships outside of marriage and between a man and a woman but then that also gets a little messy too because you wouldn't want them to get married right <laughs> right <laughs> and you wouldn't like it is a man and a woman i'm not that i'm giving a, my own opinion on that subject but you know there's that and then um also there are cultures that do think incest is fine you know as i'm going through this i'm critically thinking about it and i don't think it's fine i still think it's bad but i can totally see what they're trying to do in this experiment where your emotion is leading and all of your reasoning is trying to catch up with your emotions because I'm still over here trying to figure out a way to make it wrong. <laughs> I think and I, st I stand by that, but I think you know. with this example, we can't like let's not jump to other subjects from like really the point that I was trying to show that the, the experiment is trying to tease out in our psychology is that, we have some kind of intuitive judgment, and then we search for reasons to justify that yeah. that judgment. I was just trying to, and it just shows our that. brains doing that in real time. But no, you bring up an interesting point about like you know there might be religious objections or whatever. Those, I think that that goes off into a discussion about well, how do we know that those are actually true? Mm -hmm. And we could chase that rabbit but i think it just well the same with cultures right like how do we know which culture is right right so we have to have some kind of objective standard to say no this is wrong because it harms another person or it you know will harm a baby that might be born or whatever it might be like we need to have some kind of objective standard and when he takes all of those away like he does his best to take those away in that example then we're left going wait, I know this is wrong. Like, this is wrong. Well, but what? what's my reasoning? Right. And not that I think that that's, like, showing that that's true, that that's okay, and we're all wrong searching for reasons. That's, I don't think that's the case. I, I agree that it's it's gross. But there's not that objective, like, reasoning for why it's wrong. We don't have it. Like It's we, just an interesting experiment. It is. It is. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that, that that's really all that the experiment was trying to show. So let's let's move on from that, shall we? Thank you. <laughs> Maybe we'll cut all of that out. I don't know. I don't know if Hannah will let me uh, publish the, that whole discussion. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so let's go back to our little group of homo sapiens somewhere in Africa back 30,000 years ago. Can I cut you off here for just a second? Sure. You know, we've been on this whole tangent, it feels like. Can we just <laughs> circle back to, like, why are we talking about this again? Just to remind our listeners so they're not like, what are they doing? They're getting into incest? And like, 
African <laughs> homo sapiens and what is going on here? I don't even know what I'm listening to. Oh. So can we like circle back to, you know, like what is the purpose? Why are we talking about this? And what's our goal here? Just quickly. Okay. So let's just summarize where we've been. Into crazy town. That's where we've been. <laughs> <laughs> let's summarize why we went into crazy town. So we were talking about how do you figure out what's true? Because that's the whole goal of critical thinking, right? Yeah. And we figured, we, we kind of summarized it to these three main areas of there's senses, see, touch, feel. Here. Yeah, like here. Those things inform you of what's real, what's true. And then the second one was reasoning, our reasoning abilities. And th that's like your ability to look at patterns and make inferences from those patterns, I guess is the best, most concise way to say that. Mm -hmm. And then three was our own internal experiences. Or I'd lump faith into that category where you have some personal experience with divinity and you, you determine truth from that. So, okay. so those we... were the three things we looked at. And then we looked at this example with this little band of early humans and showed how those three methods don't always work for helping the group decide on what is true like which is the best area for them to go and find food they 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 might th there's a good chance that they're going to disagree and that it, it's not a, a reliable way to come to truth and then I, we were just exploring more about that like some of the pro flaws with with all of that, of our senses, we can make wrong judgment calls, our reasoning abilities, that whole incest story, it shows how we're influenced by our emotions and our intuitive judgments. And then we come up with reasons to justify those. So just basically showing that all those different, those three different methods are not, they didn't evolve as a reliable way to get to truth. So are we pushing forward into the future now? Is that what we're yeah doing we're gonna or were there more examples no we're gonna we're gonna push forward into the future with this okay. little band of of humans so right now we're, we're viewing them as a little tribe right and i like that earlier in our discussion about them you brought up that they're probably going to choose a leader to help to make decisions uh that there's probably going to be a shaman that's in charge of determining the will of the gods that was a simple early way that we 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 chose somebody within our little tribe, our group, because we knew we were small enough. That our, our little band of, of humans were small enough that we know each other. And we can all kind of like figure out, all right, this person's probably going to be the one that takes charge and make quick decisions and keep us alive. So we're going to just listen to them. Now, let's fast forward a little bit. He, the human race starts to grow a little bit. There's a little more flourishing and groups get bigger and we find it more and more advantageous to get together in bigger groups because if we're all in our own little small groups, we're not as strong together. And then also there's the big threat that we're going to fight each other because we don't have one common agreement on what is true or what's supposed to be done. And when there's disagreement, there's going to be bloodshed. You, you already mentioned that too. So we have that that going on. So we start to band together in bigger and bigger groups. And eventually cities come about. Now think about this. What 
we've had up until this point, it was based on our immediate knowledge of each other. Like we were familiar with each other. Like you could, you could know, you know, the 20 people in your little tribe, but when you're in a city that there's a lot that you don't know, you, that you can't know everybody. And even if you do, you're not going to know them at the intimate level that you did in this little tribe. Right. Right. That's when we start to come up with institutions that we kind of put in place of that, that one leader or the shaman. That's when we have more religion or we set up governments and royal families. And so we, we embody that, that decision-making authority in an institution so that everybody can just trust it and we don't ha- don't all have to intimately know each other. D- does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Are you following him? Yeah. Am I okay? Now, you continue to have the same freaking problem, and history is littered with this, where you have bigger and bigger groups that have you know a king in charge or a priest or a pope or whatever, and there's another group, a bigger group that disagrees. That just means you have bigger, bloodier wars, right? Right. And so this, this whole like epistemic, when I say that word epistemic, it's related to epistemology. It just means like knowledge, how we all understand that I have the same understanding of what's true. There's this big epistemic problem still between all these different groups. And it continues like that for quite a long time. So we're going to fast forward way forward all the way up to the 1400s. You have something that happens that kind of adds another layer of complexity to this whole epistemic system, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the printing press. So the printing press, rather than us just trusting these, maybe not even trusting, we just, this is, we accept, like these are the institutions that we trust to make the decisions and they're in charge. They're the arbiters of truth. Which was the church at that time. The church and governments and monarchies. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the printing press puts so much knowledge in the hands of vast, like the masses, that individuals start to be the arbiters of truth. They start to be able to recognize like, oh, hey, this is a bad decision or this is a good decision. There's no longer just that reliance on the system as mm-hmm. it existed, right? And this leads to all sorts of upheaval and clashes that we've all probably learned about in high school with the Reformation, with the Catholic Church and the birth of Protestantism. And the Renaissance was a product of this. Weren't the wars of religion in there too? Well, yeah, that, that that's like immediately following the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you get the wars of religion where there's just, it, it just introduces a bunch of chaos into this system, this epistemic system that we've been relying on, where all of a sudden everybody's, everybody has an opinion and everybody has a say where we used to just rely on the, this, you know, there was one person who made all the decisions. They had all the information, they controlled everything and everyone thought, I don't really know. So I'm going to just trust this person to make the decisions. But so you're saying that now the average person could all of a sudden be reading the bible and say i don't think they're right about this exactly and so to where we go yep and that's why you have the church you know putting 
people to death Mm -hmm. simply for translating the Bible at this time, because it wasn't just that they were, you know, giving people the word of God. Like that seems like it'd be a good thing. Right. But it turns the whole epistemic system on its head. And there, there was epistemic, but you know, the whole structure of power, right. Yep. And who's in control. Yep. And you, that you get the European wars of religion out of this that go on during the 1500s. And they are some of the bloodiest and longest wars that Europe had seen up till that point. You, you just have people fighting about religious questions. And it's and religion at the time is also really tied into the government. So mm-hmm. religious questions all of a sudden become government and state questions. And it just, it's just, there's so much upheaval. And so then you get like the Hundred Years' War, where I think something I was reading said like a fifth of Germany or a third, it's either a fifth or a third of Germany's population died in that Holy war. Cow. It it was just massive, and it's just chaos. It's it's chaos, and what's born out of this are some of the greatest thinkers I think that we've had in Western history where you have born in Great Britain, guys like John Locke. And John Locke, he grew up watching these wars and experiencing this just chaos that Europe was in. And uh, you have other other great thinkers like him, uh, Rene Descartes in France. He uh, Same thing, they're, they're seeing these problems and they're realizing we've got to figure out a better epistemic system, a better system for determining what's true. So at this time, how were those leaders, you know, that were fight like saying, I'm right, let's go to war. How were they determining truth at the time? Were they coming at it like I've prayed to God and he's told me this? Were they, you know, reading the Bible and saying, you know, this is my interpretation? Was it a combination? What was going on there? I mean, it's, I, I can't say it's the same thing across Europe because you have so many different right. countries yeah. and, and religious factions going on. But largely, I would say there was this idea of these absolute monarchs that had this divine right to rule. Mm-hmm. They justified that because God can kill anyone, because God's in, you know, in charge of life itself, the fact that he has allowed that king to come in succession in in line to be put in that place means that they are sanctioned by god to rule so therefore they honestly saw it as like having absolute power they basically whatever they thought is what god wanted pretty pretty much i don't know if they thought of it explicitly that way it wasn't so much about like what is god's will it was more like well this is my will and god put me here and God could take me out if he didn't want me to do this, so I'm going to do it. Like, it was it was more of that kind of thinking. Okay. I'd, I'd also agree that that's, uh, that's probably true of, like, the Pope. Because at that time, the Catholic Church was so, it was almost its own state, you know, it was like so much power. And it was, they were mostly concerned about their institutional power and not so much about like, whoa, what's the will of God? Oh, I prayed and I, I received this revelation from God. It was more about, well, I've been put in this place by God and this is the thing that needs to happen mm. for the church to maintain power. I, I think that's more of 
of the mentality that existed. Okay. Anyway, does that okay, answer so, your question? Yeah, I'm just trying to get a clearer idea of how epistemology changes. You know, so what's our starting point at this, um, at that point in time, and where is it going? How does that shift? Gotcha. I'm okay. Just trying to clarify that. So let me just repeat it back to make sure I'm understanding. So you're saying that basically an individual in monarchy is just saying basically no one else's opinion matters. They don't really live in a pluralistic society because they're just yeah, saying... Yeah, that, that was not a thing yet. Yeah. Like it's just... Tolerance the, was not a thing. Yeah. So it's just just me. No one else matters. And so whatever I say goes and... Is that it, basically? Yeah, me and the the group that I I represent is what matters. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And yeah, tolerance was not a thing because that that's what led to all these wars. There wasn't tolerance for different beliefs. It was oh, you're a Catholic and you're not a Protestant, like we all are. Then you know, we're going to have some conflicts. We're going to have problems. And we want our guy in power, not the Catholic king. We want to take the Catholic king out and we want to put in a Protestant king kind of a thing. Okay. So you have that going on. And... So with John Locke and Descartes and all of these other people, what does it start shifting to? So what we go into during this period is called the Enlightenment. And this is when the... You know, in Western history, we really start to explore the limits and the capabilities of human reason. It happened a little bit in Greece before, but not to the extent that we did during the Enlightenment. And this kind of the first big step in that is Rene Descartes. He received a Jesuit education. So he was really educated by like serious religious people. Yeah. Do you want to just really quick for those who don't know what a Jesuit is? Do you want to just really quickly talk? Yeah, it's just like a a certain faction of of Catholics that are just very, very devout. Uh, They might even be uh, like monks, I think. I think think Pope Francis right now was a Jesuit. Anyway, yeah. So it's just a certain like uber religious group within the Catholics. I don't know a whole lot about them. So in his in Descartes' book Meditations, he talks about how as a child, meaning I assume he's talking about his Jesuit education, right? He had swallowed a large number of falsehoods. And then he says, I realized that it was necessary once in the course of my life to demolish everything completely and start again right from the foundations if I wanted to establish anything at all in the sciences that was stable and likely to last. So he realized the limits to which he could actually know something. And he didn't trust those dogmas that he was getting from his religious education. And he said, how do I actually know these things are true? And so he goes through the entire process of just demolishing this and starting from the ground and building up of how can I actually know what's true and what's not. Wow. That's quite the process. Yeah. He wrote a whole book on it called Meditations. Okay, so a couple things. First off, can you define dogma? Oh, yeah. Dogma is just a, it's a belief that's not based on evidence or like rational argument. It's just a, a belief and it's considered above question. 
Okay, so give give our listeners a good example of that. A good example would be the dogma that the Bible is infallible, that the Bible is perfect. It's the perfect word of God and that everything in it is perfect and it comes straight from God, where we can actually demonstrate that the Bible contradicts itself in areas, that it there, there are problems with it. There's really good evidence that biblical scholars have now of entire books in the Bible that are fabrications or they were written by somebody that's claiming to be someone else like Isaiah and they're not actually by Isaiah. It was written later and somebody stuck it in there pretending it was from Isaiah. So we have evidence that it's not fallible, but some religious folks have this dogma that the Bible is infallible and you can't question that Mm -hmm. um, if you want to be part of the group. It's fine if, if people don't want to question it and they want to believe that, but they, you just have to accept, like, this is a dogma I'm choosing to believe, even though this belief is not based on evidence. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of leads into my other question about this. So I'm sure um, there's a lot of people that would listen to this and, you know, how Descartes, he's saying he had to, like, demolish everything and start from the ground and build his way up. Um you know, just basically rebuilding his, um, inner world, you know, his ideas about the world. I'm sure a lot of people are listening to that and that's a terrifying thought, you know, (laughs) to like, like, are you advocating for this? You know, like, how are you, you're, you're explaining this and what, what is your intention here on, um, like bringing that up, is that, is that something you think everyone should do? Are you thinking, um, you know, like just tell us about what, what the value is in that. You I don't know, give us a little perspective. So, Cause I'm sure listeners are just like, heck no, I'm not going to do that. Like what? Yeah. I'm not saying that everybody has to go through that process. Like Descartes did. I'm just explaining how he came to the the theories that he did, the process he went through, uh, even though I don't know that everybody has to do that. I think from the enlightenment, we get some good models that we can all use of like some theories of epistemology or how we can know something is true or not Right. that we can, we can use, but I'm just walking you through that process of how Descartes did that because that didn't really exist that well at his time. And so he just was like, just because it comes from the Bible or from a clergyman doesn't mean I'm going to have to accept this as truth. I need to go and I need to figure out what's true. How do I do that? And so that's why he started at the very bottom. Some people need to do that. Some people don't. Yeah. But that makes sense as, you know, one of the original writers on this subject to, you know, have needed to go through that experience to really start at the bottom and work his way up. And I think there's a lot of value, even if you don't do that yourself, there's a lot of value in like learning from someone else's experience that has done that. And, you know, just getting a different perspective. Yeah. I think, I don't think we all need to do that quite to the level that Descartes did, but thankfully, (laughs) I think it's good for all of us to do it to some degree to ask, how do I know something's true? And we, we all do do this a little bit. Like usually teenage years Mm -hmm. when we suddenly realize my parents aren't perfect (laughs) 
I don't have to accept everything they say as being the total complete truth. And, you know, some people go through a little bit of a rebellious stage. And then through young adulthood, we kind of differentiate from our parents. And like it, it's natural to do that a little bit. But I think we need to do it continuing into adulthood, even as we formulate some of our own opinions and, and things. It's good to reevaluate. How do I know that's true? Why do I believe that's true? Do I have a good reason for believing that tr- that's true? So that's how Descartes did that. Okay. Sorry for that tangent. but No, that was good. So what Descartes did, he he really trusted what he called his his intellect, basically reason. And he thought that anything that he thought through and evaluated and he could see was, oh, what's his wording? Whatever is clear and distinct is true. So he he really he remember the world he's coming from like and he was he really believed in god and so he thought that god had these truths and that the way that humans were able to figure out those truths was through our intellect through our reasoning abilities and if we could think through something and it was really clear then it's true he he gives an example where he talks about like shapes and he was really into geometry, like the Cartesian plane that we all learn about, the, the graph with positive numbers going up and negative numbers going down, yes. and negative numbers going left and positive numbers going right, right. the X and Y axis. Yep. That's Cartesian plane. He came up with that. He was oh, okay. really into geometry. But he, he talks about how um, we can know that it's a clear and distinct idea, uh, like the number five like five things and we can count them like that's a clear and distinct idea we know that's a true thing that there's five things or the shape of a triangle it's a clear like nature has three sides like we can know that's true so clear and distinct things to him that's how we knew it was true and relied a lot on reason on your intellect to like look at those things and process that and i can say okay like or, or, or another example is he added up the angles of a triangle and figured out that they summed up to 180 degrees, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a clear and distinct thing that using his intellect and reasoning, he could see was true. Therefore, that is a truth that God created, that the sum of all the angles of a triangle is 180, that that was a truth. And so he that that's really his epistemic model he comes up with is relying on our reasoning abilities to figure out what's clear and distinct is true does that make sense yeah so we've gone from a monarchy that is saying that they're the source of truth because god told them that they're they are basically monarchy or a religious leader yeah okay and now we're going to um basically relying on purely our intellect yep to know what's true but from personal experience yes is that correct yeah yeah okay. uh, yeah that's a that's a way to think about it and remember where this is coming from it's the printing press has suddenly unleashed all this like everybody's their own arbiter of truth and they right. can get all sorts of information and you know Descartes can learn enough math for himself to figure out the you know geometry of 180 degrees is what all the angles of a triangle sum up to. So 
it's kind of moved more toward that model still based a little bit on like those own internal experiences where you've reasoned through something and you see that something's clear and distinct. So therefore to you like, okay, this thing is true. So that was what? 1500s. Let me double check. While you're doing that. No, he was early 1600s is, uh, is when Descartes was writing. And then, uh, John Locke comes a little bit later, 1600. So he's he's not long after. But you got a question? Yeah. So I'm sure listeners are, you know, we've kind of, we're still going on this whole history journey. Can you tie us back into real life really quick and say why it's important to know all of these steps in the history of critical thinking? Like, why why do we care about this? So... Look at politics right now. How often are we willing to, do do you see people, watch a presidential debate. Are they actually having a discussion where they're looking at evidence and they're weighing the evidence and having a, a, a real dialogue about, okay, what does the evidence here suggest is the right course of action? Not really. Like they're, they're approaching it from, I'm right, my party's right, you guys are wrong, you guys are the bad guys, and I'm going to make it so everybody sees it that way, that I'm the good guy, you're the bad guy. Right. So going back to the early Homo sapiens, we're currently still stuck in the state of just trying to persuade, right? Yeah. And we, we always will be to a degree. Right. For sure. But... So, so we're looking at this enlightenment era and just because I'm saying these ideas are getting more defined and you have a lot of more elite, intelligent people that are learning them and they, they make their way into like institutions, like especially like the American, the U S government is, uh, the, they create a constitution. They, they put a lot of these ideas in there. Um, as, as that's happening, it doesn't necessarily mean that the masses are doing the same thing. Like people are still going to still by and large, just motivated by emotions and they're not reason. And they're very dogmatic. They're very tribal. And that's, that's continued through to today. Just because we have better institutions built on better ideas. Doesn't mean that everybody living within those institutions has actually adopted those ideas. And so that's why you see that show up in the presidential debates is because we're a democracy and candidates have to win over all these irrational people. Right. (laughs) So you're saying basically it's important to know this history because we need to be aware of these things happening within our own brains that we're we're just not really conscious of in our day-to-day lives. We just, it's ingrained in us in our culture in our history, in our genetics. And so you're just saying that the importance of this is being able to, having the knowledge allows you to see it in yourself when you're starting to follow those patterns and to be able to check yourself. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. See yourself in each of these stages of epistemology and say, where am I? How do I think? can I advance it to the next level and be a little more rational, a little, a little bit better thinker? 
the and incorporate some of these ideas that our institutions and our, our, our world has been built around to make it a much better world than it was during those European wars of religion or any time before. You, the, read about the Middle Ages. Read about, read the Bible. Like, things were bloody. People were killing each other for really stupid reasons. We're, we're much, we're not perfect, but it is a much better world now than it was back then. Yeah, we and, keep saying the world keeps getting worse and worse, but read history. It's, I don't think that's totally the case. <laughs> yeah. That's if you, by any objective measure, the world is so much better today than it was at probably any other point in history. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to show is that we all, if we want to be better thinkers and critically think, we need to incorporate these ideas that our world was built on, even though not everybody living in the world has has incorporated those ideas yet. Okay. I'm, I'm saying we need to start doing it. So, okay. and I'm, I'm just using these examples. Descartes was really focused on reason. Our, okay. our intellect, like our intellect's abilities to think about something and come to conclusions that are clear and make sense. Okay. So what was the next big jump so, in um, the development of critical thinking and so, epistemology? So next thing after that comes John Locke. And John Locke, he he's really known for his contributions to this new political system. He, he's really the founder of liberalism. And I don't mean that in the sense of Democrats. I mean that. Yeah, in the, describe it. Yeah, I mean that in the sense of originally the word liberalism, its root is liberty, right? It's about freedom. And during this time, during the Enlightenment, there's some kind of debates back and forth among different philosophers. And some philosophers, Thomas Hobbes comes to mind, really support the idea of keeping a monarchy because monarchies keep the rabble in line. If, if we don't have a central authority figure to tell us, hey, this is what needs to happen, the state of nature of humans is kind of savage and we're just going to end up killing each other. We need an authority figure to keep us in line. Locke presented this really revolutionary idea that no, I think humans can be generally good, but we do need a government to protect our liberties. That's the idea of liberalism. So things like he just watched these European wars of religion and his innovation was to say, you know what? Government needs to protect people's ability to have the religious beliefs that they want. And we all need to learn to tolerate those other beliefs as a society instead of advocating to get our guy in power and fighting the other guys. Instead, he he really comes up with this idea of tolerance and that the government's job is to protect people's liberty to believe what they want. That's a big deal in history. It is. And he also comes up with this idea that we all have natural rights. And that's why the government needs to protect our liberty is because we have these God-given natural rights. And he outlines three of them, life, liberty, and property. And by property, he doesn't just mean owning land, right? He means private ownership, really, that I can build wealth, that I can own anything. It's not just whoever can take the most stuff gets it like there's there's laws respecting private ownership inalienable laws that i have a right to keep the things that i've earned 
and that the government's job is to ensure that these natural rights are protected. That's really this political innovation of John Locke. Now, that's the really well-known thing, but he doesn't come up with this just based off of like his political ideas. This is really rooted in epistemology. He is looking at Europe and these wars of religion that happened, and he's saying, why did we allow this to happen? And, and who's right? Because we're all fighting about who's right about this. And what? how can that be determined? Are the Catholics right? Are the Protestants right? Because that was the central question during that whole time period is who's going to win? Who's right? Who's going to win this, this whole battle over establishing what truth is? And unless God comes down from the sky and points out, you know, for everyone to see, you know, in front of everyone that this person is right, there's no way to know. Yep. And if you want to get at the root of how Locke thinks about this, read his book, An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. It's an awesome book. He dives into this whole epistemic question of how can we as humans know what is true? And how can we distinguish truth from opinion? And obviously it's, it's a tough question to answer. And so the book's pretty long. But the main point that Locke gets to in the book is he focuses on what you said at the beginning of this, this conversation, Hannah, really like the, the scientific method. He doesn't call it that. He, he calls it, I can't remember if he uses the word empiricism or not, but he, he basically says like our senses, I have to rely on my senses to be able to know what is true and what is not. And if, if something can't be determined through the senses, then that's a realm that we just can't say what is true and what's not. And then out of that, you know, is born this idea of tolerance that if I can't prove that Catholicism is correct versus Protestantism through senses where people can actually observe it, really the scientific method, then I have no right to restrict people's liberty around that thing. A lot of people, especially modern day conservatives, love the founders and the ideals that America was set up on. But when you get at the root of where those ideals come from and why they work, it's because John Locke was thinking about epistemology and how can we know what is true versus what is not. And he determined that those things that we can't, we can't come to a conclusion about whether or not they're true through this, through empirical evidence, then we've got to tolerate opposing views. And even those things that have empirical evidence that we've got to, we've got to be able to tolerate opposing views on that as well. But that's that kind of, comes into play a little bit later, but that's this big epistemic innovation of John Locke. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're talking about using empirical evidence in the senses. Define a little clearer how that was different from Descartes. So Descartes, to him, it didn't have to be about like, can I observe it through my senses? Instead, it was about, because, because how do you really like through your senses figure out that 180 the, the sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees like there's so much going on there that's not just because sight all you're doing is processing these light waves like right, in your right. eyes and your brain right and but there's thinking going on behind it and like the reasoning abilities like th that's what math's really built on just because like how do i i can't really sense that 
500 times 10 is 5,000. That's a reasoning thing. Like I can reason through that. And so that's, and to him, like that's true. Where there's some truth to that. And this is still a philosophical debate going on. Like there, there is some truth to that, but we've also shown that reasoning can have its problems. And that was something Descartes hadn't really got to yet, but he, he thought that that's how we determine what was absolutely true. Locke is saying, okay, we can't even totally trust that, like our reasoning, because we can all reason differently and come to different conclusions. So just because something's clear and distinct, Descartes' definition, doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. The only way that we can collectively agree on something that's true is we have to be able to observe it or, or sense it, like through our senses, and agree on, okay, we, we saw this. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that leads to an interesting question. So I think sometimes two people can observe the same thing. Right. With their senses and see different things. For example, someone that's colorblind observing something is going to have a different view, literally. They're going to see something literally different than someone that's not colorblind. So can you give more of a definition on using our senses? Was he just talking about like touching, seeing, hearing? Was he just talking about those things? Or is this just still early development of this theory? So we progress over time. Just give, give a little background on that theory of the senses. Yeah, the answer is it's still early in the development of it. So he's really just focused on kind of individually at that point. And he's talking about collectively too, but he hasn't really thought through, okay, how do we do that? It's more just, this is how my brain can decide on something that's true or not. And I have to, I have to talk to another person. We have to observe the same thing in order to agree that it's true. What naturally flows from there, no, there's no one creator of this piece of it. And this is this is another brilliant innovation. Here, let me read something from Locke that he actually says in an essay concerning human understanding. It shows how he's thinking about the very question you're asking, but it also shows the limits of what he feels he's able to answer at this point. Okay. He says, the strength of our persuasions is no evidence at all of their own rectitude. So even though we feel passionately about something doesn't mean they're necessarily right. And men may be as positive and peremptory in error as in truth. How come else the untractable zealots in different and opposing and opposite parties? We we have people that feel very passionately that actually are diametrically opposed to each other. Mm -hmm. He's thinking of Catholics and Protestants, I'm sure. For if the light, which everyone thinks he has in his mind which in this case is nothing but the strength of his own persuasion, be an evidence that it is from God, contrary opinions have the same title to be inspirations. And God will be not only the father of lights, but of opposite and contradictory lights, leading men contrary ways, and contradictory propositions will be divine truths, if an ungrounded strength of assurance be an evidence that any proposition is a divine revelation." Let, let's talk through it because yeah, I know he, he uses a lot of uh, it's art, kind of archaic language. So Locke is basically saying that people can be convinced that they have the truth from from God, 
to answer your question, this is how he's thinking about it. He's really thinking of it in terms of Catholics versus Protestants at this point. I don't think he's gotten to the point of, okay, how does everybody agree on what, that we see the same thing with our senses? He's just, he's simply just saying Catholics can think they're right. Protestants can think they're right. And like, they can be totally convinced that they have the, they have the eternal truth, right? And both sides can be equally convinced. And it's contradictory. So either God is telling people contradictory things, or some people, when they think they've got this answer from God, are wrong. And so that's not a good way for us to rely on knowing what's true. Instead, I think we should rely on what our senses can tell us. And that's as far as he's really taking it. Does that answer your question? Like, he's not really developing, like, a theory out of it of how we go and implement that okay he's basically just saying this way doesn't work i think it's better if we base it on our senses okay and then from there humans take that and they it it creates the environment especially like as you have the political side being put in place that focuses on natural rights tolerance when that's all in place it creates an environment where people are able to debate ideas and as you have this new epistemic model that comes out of the enlightenment where people are like, okay, we need to base things on what the scientific method, what we can actually observe on empiricism. And we can use our intellect to help us figure out what might be true and what's not, what's not as they're, they're exploring these ideas more and they're becoming more widespread. These network effects begin to take place where scientific communities really start to form Geology, for example, in the book Constitution of Knowledge, Jonathan Rausch, he talks about, he gives this example with early geology, where there was the belief, the biblical belief that the earth was only 6,000 years old. And then this scientist, geologist, he had started to find evidence that that the earth was older than that. And it was super heretical at the time. And other scientists were finding, you know, their evidence that was confirming like the earth isn't that old or like had different, they had different opinions. And this network effect starts to take place where you have different scientists having debates and different opinions. And they start to take some of the testing methods of this, this geologist and others start applying those to see if they get the same results. And as they do start getting the same results and those debates are happening, it starts to become clearer and clearer. Hey, if we're basing our, what we think is true on the actual evidence, more and more scientists, we're getting convinced that this is, that the earth is more than 6,000 years old. And eventually this debate gets mostly resolved because there's been something called peer review. Other scientists are looking at the work of this geologist and evaluating it and like looking at the evidence and testing the same things that he did. And not all of them get the same test results he did. Like some might find different, they might have a different testing methodology that they use or just for some weird reason, they get a different result and they come to a different conclusion. But among the network of scientists, the vast majority of them that have peer reviewed this work start to say, you know what? I think this is right. And for now that becomes the standard of this is what we believe to be right. Because most of us have been able to test this and, you know, use empiricism, our own senses to 
and, and scientific reasoning to determine what is actually true. And think about it, like I'm using words that we still use today, like peer review and scientific method testing, like doing experimentation that starts to spread and become more of the standard because it's, we've just through the ideas of John Locke, we've really set up a, uh, an environment where those, those things can thrive and nobody's being punished for being a heretic. Cause you know, a few, few centuries earlier, if this geologist had presented that idea, he'd probably been put to death and that would have been the end of that. And the earth would still only be 6,000 years old because we now have tolerance of heretical ideas we can have these network effects going on and have peer review and come to a consensus on, you know what? It looks like the evidence tells us this is true. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. You really pulled that together. Good job. Good. Now, a key thing with this, Jonathan Rauch in uh, Constitution of Knowledge again, he distills this whole system down into two rules. Let me pull them up The here. whole system of what? This whole empirical system that, okay. that comes out of the, the Enlightenment and then also these networks that start to form. And he, this is what he calls the constitution of knowledge. It's really these two rules. The first one is the fallibist, fallibilist rule. No one gets the final say. You may claim that a statement is established as knowledge only if it can be debunked in principle and only insofar as it withstands attempts to debunk it. Basically, that whole standard of like, it has to be testable through our senses and we have to, others need to be able to test it to see if it's true or not. And then the second rule is called the empirical rule. He says, no one has personal authority. You may claim that a statement has been established as knowledge only insofar as the method used to check it gives the same result regardless of the identity of the checker and regardless of the source of the statement. So anybody in this network of scientists, any scientist can try these same methods and see if they get the same results. And if the vast majority of them do and agree, yes, we've got these results, only then can you say, we're going to classify this as knowledge. I mean, this is like the theory of evolution mm -hmm. is another good example of how this took place. Like at first that was a super heretical, crazy idea. And as more scientists studied it and as more scientists looked at the evidence, they all, the vast, vast majority started to agree. You know what? All the evidence points to this being, being the, the actual way that, nature works and it it's become to the point now that it's so agreed on by scientists that it, we accept it as true now that being said no one has personal authority so there's no one out there that gets to say this is absolutely true and it will forever be true that theory is always open to being tested in other ways and if somebody can test it and find hey, you know what? This aspect of it is not right. This is wrong. Then we, again, repeat the system. Repeat yeah. the system. This network goes and tests it too, and they figure out, you know what? We agree or we don't agree. And so, so there's never actually, you know, 10 commandments of like, these are the set in stone rules of what is true. Instead, it's just an ongoing conversation among these networks. 
And I, I think that's, I just love that. That that's that is how epistemology has to work. It's a conversation, and that's why I named this podcast Theotetus because I love that. That's what Socrates does clear back in ancient Greece in order to figure out, hey, let's figure out what is true about some principle or some some word like he does with Theotetus. They have a conversation, and they they try to debunk every theory that they that they they have. And it's only through that conversation of exploring all the various theories that are out there and debunking the ones that don't work that they feel they, they start to be able to approximate truth, but they never can quite get there because there's, we always have to leave it open for being updated. Maybe tomorrow somebody discovers some overwhelming evidence that Adam and Eve and the garden story really happened and that the earth is 6,000 years old and everything in the Bible is completely literal. Maybe somebody finds some evidence for that and we reevaluate and we update the theories and evolution goes out the window and we, we find a different explanation for why we thought evolution was a thing for the evidence that existed for that. There is always a possibility for that. But right now, the vast majority of the evidence does not point that way. The consensus among scientists is that evolution is a, is true. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Any questions? It's very heretical, though. <laughs> I know. I like being a heretic. So what? why does all this matter? Like we said before, put yourself in the different stages of this. Where do you fit? Like, if you take this whole system that we've just described, that it took humans literally thousands of years to figure out what we know right now is our best system for figuring out truth collectively— if you take that and you apply it to yourself individually, that's critical thinking. And that's why critical thinking matters. That's why it's the most powerful tool you have to figure out what is actually true. And there's a lot of people now, I, I can't tell you how many times I heard this during the pandemic, during the Trump presidency, uh, even now with the, in the Biden presidency, with all of the scandals and all of the controversies about you should wear masks. You shouldn't wear masks. COVID is dangerous. COVID is not dangerous. Uh, racial injustice is everywhere. Black lives matter or no, it's just manipulated data. Like I've heard so many times people saying, I don't know what to believe anymore because there's so much information out there or worse. People find the information that they want to believe and they use that to support their beliefs. And they never, ever expose themselves to the contrary argument. It's just, it's, there's so much information out there that people can cherry pick all the info that they want to. This is what a lot of like podcast hosts and like political pundits do is they go and cherry pick all the information to feed you the narrative that they want you to believe or that your, that party wants you to believe. And I'm sure everybody's thinking, Oh, the other party does that. Like, no, your party does this. <laughs> ben Shapiro does this. Pod Save America does this. They cherry pick all the data points they want you to have. They spoon feed them to you through their programs or their or tweets or whatever, or whatever that's called now, X. They spoon feed it to you so that you have all, you're, you're armed with all this info to believe what you want. But guess what? You are not using this brilliant system that humans came up with that's helping to 
that has helped our world advance and get beyond some of our the darkest aspects of our past. That you're not using those tools. Instead, you're just believing the things you want to because you're being it's being spoon-fed to you. You need to engage in critical thinking where you're engaging with that whole network. And no one has personal authority and every claim None of them are infallible. They have to be testable and can, they have to be able to be debunked and you need to actively try to debunk them. That's what critical thinking is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to think of this from the lens that, you know, a lot of our potential listeners might think of this and I am coming up with these questions from their perspective of like, where does faith tie into this? Because faith is believing without seeing and seeing is one of the senses, right? So basically like faith is the opposite of that. It's believing without being able to use your senses to tell something is true. So where does faith tie into this? And like, is, are you trying to say that faith doesn't have any value or, you know, like this is a really uncomfortable thing for people to like start going out and checking all of these other, uh, checking all of their beliefs and saying, well, I'm probably wrong about this or I could be wrong. You know, it's a, why, it's a why deeply is it, terrifying thing to do to say I that, might be wrong about some of your profound beliefs. Yeah. And that can be a painful experience sometimes. So why is critical thinking worth it? you know, if it's going to put you in discomfort, like, why would you want to inflict that upon yourself? Why is it so important to apply it to your, you know, how you think about things? Isn't life better when you're comfortable and things roll smoothly for you? Cause you're, it's a good question. I would ask a Catholic the same thing in the 1600 or the 1500s. Isn't life comfortable believing that the Pope is infallible and that you are following the creator of the universe's will, that's, that's pretty comfortable. And you need to defend it from those scary Protestants that are trying to take over the country. You, you've got to defend it even to the death. Is that a better life? And suffering through, you know, the hundred years war, these bloody, bloody, just massacres in Europe. Is that a better life for you personally and for human beings collectively than John Locke's revolutionary idea of, hey, tolerance. We need to allow people to have different views. And just because I'm a Catholic and I want to believe Catholicism is true, I need to be open to the idea that Protestants could be right. And they have every right, just like I do, to believe that they're right. And so therefore, I don't need to enforce my beliefs on them. Instead, we need to respect each other's, each other's right to believe what we want to. Now, if you, that, that, that's the first key, I would say, that I think everyone needs to get to. The second step is... How bad do you want to know what is actually true? Some people don't. And if they want to just stay where they're at and believe the things that that they believe, that is 
totally fine as long as they can tolerate other beliefs. They can live in a pluralistic society. If you can't, you need to go and read some history and recognize that you are not following the ideals of the American Revolution. You are not basing your worldview on the greatest ideas that are around today. You are, you are, you have not advanced beyond a very dark time in human history and you need to get, you need to advance beyond it. Now that that's the first group you need to, you need to accept the principle of tolerance. Second group, if you really want to know what is true, this is the best way you have to do it. Because I know that there are plenty of people that think that God is the source of all truth. And if we go to the Bible, he'll tell us what's true in there. If we go and pray, he'll answer us and tell us what's true. The, the problem is, let me read that quote from John Locke again. The strength of our persuasions is no evidence at all of their own rectitude. He says, if the light, which everyone thinks he has in his mind, which in this case is nothing but the strength of his own persuasion, be an evidence that it is from God, contrary opinions have the same title to be inspirations. So maybe I've prayed and I got an answer. The Book of Mormon's true. That's great for you because there are Muslims in this world that have grown up every day praying three times a day and feeling a deep sense of spiritual connection to their creator. They listen to the Quran being recited in Arabic. And I, I took an intro to Islam class in college and we actually did this and it is a deeply spiritual experience. I remember feeling that just listening to the Quran in Arabic. It's beautiful. And that's one of the things they say is evidence of its divinity that it comes from God is the beauty, the just beautiful poetic sense it has about it as it's being recited out loud. And I felt that as I listened to it, there are Muslims that have that same experience and feel profoundly that Islam is the true religion of God. There are people of any number of religions that have just as much conviction as you do that they have the truth from God. Who's to say they are wrong? What other method can you point to to determine I'm right, you're wrong? Like you, you can't because it's such a subjective experience. So you can have those personal views, but that's not necessarily the strongest way to come to, to determine what is actually true because we can get contradictory answers using that same method is all I'm saying. So if you really want to know what's true, first of all, you have to accept that you're, you're never going to have a strong concrete answer because we're always updating it because it's an ongoing conversation with these networks where we're exposing ourselves to different ideas and opposing views and having debates. And, and as we expose ourselves to those things and learn about the the strongest arguments from each of these different viewpoints and opinions. And as we, as we open ourselves up to those things and learn about them, that is the best way for you to personally figure out what might be true and what's not, because you're learning all that can be said against an argument. You're sifting through to find which one's the strongest one. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm not sure that all of the listeners will 
you know, be able to comprehend that on the first time listening to this. Um, Sorry. It's okay. It's, I think it's, it's a challenging topic because, you know, it's very ingrained, like, like we've been talking about in our culture and our history and our genes to think a certain way and to, um, it's comfortable in our brains to, you know, lean to confirmation bias and to see pieces of evidence that support our worldview as truth. And it's very uncomfortable to get out of that. You've done a good job of explaining why it's so important as a community to be able to have tolerance and to see things from other people's perspective. What do you see happening if we don't apply these critical thinking skills? The same thing that happened with the emergence of the printing press. The, all of the disruption and then the European wars of religion, except this time it might not be about Protestants versus Catholics. It might be Democrats versus Republicans, or it might be authoritarians versus democracies. The longer we choose not to use these tools, the more real that likelihood becomes. I think we're going through a similar time as when the printing press was first invented, because we have the internet now. And not only can everybody be their own individual arbiter of truth, because they can get all these books and information and read. Now, everybody can be a source. Everybody can create their own content and create their own information. And that just makes it even harder to sift through all of the information and opinions out there and to figure out what might be true and what's not. It's more important than ever that we have a second enlightenment where not only the elite class and these institutions that we set up, like get founded on these tools and actively use them, these, these philosophies, we need the general population now to learn how to use them or else we're headed for more conflict like that, like, like in the hundred years war. And I desperately don't want to see that. Look at all the things that have happened in the last few years with January 6th, with the Black Lives Matter riots, with like, there's, there's a lot of upheaval that's been going on with these populist leaders, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump or the rise of neo-Nazism, both in Europe and America. Like we have a lot of concerning conspiracy theories in general. Yes. Yes. And people believing all sorts of crazy things. You have QAnon now, and these things are, I think they're symptoms of this massive disruption we've had in our epistemic model with the internet. And we need the masses of people to learn how to use these critical thinking skills and to function the way that we set our institutions to function because of the enlightenment. We now need individuals to be able to do it, to determine what's true and what's not, or we're, we're just headed for more conflict and more upheaval, I think. Okay. So you're not only saying it's not just important for the experience of, you know, knowing truth as an individual or, or just so that we can get along as a society. I think those are critical. 
especially getting along as a society and having tolerance. But do you see any implications in people's personal lives? Because I think a lot of times, you know, we get stuck in tribalism. Right. Where and, and a lot of times we can feel comfortable in tribalism. And even with the idea of conflict to some extent, if you know you have a tribe, right, who's yep. got your back. And you're that not... example I used about the Catholics and Protestants earlier, like that's a pretty comfortable place for that Catholic to be like, we're the right ones. I, I've got my tribe and we got to defend ourselves from those guys that are trying to ruin our world. Yeah. Yeah. Even even if it is, um, there's a lot of conflict, but you're you feel supported. I think that can still be a comfortable place. So do you see anything like on a personal level that would be a motivator for someone to learn these skills? Honestly, for me personally, I'm just very driven. I want to know what's true. And I'm just very driven to figure that out. And some people, that's enough. Some people, they really are just so comfortable being in their tribes that they're not interested in in this. And Why should they be? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that they have to be. It's okay to be comfortable in your tribe so long as you can tolerate other tribes and you recognize that your subjective views are subjective and that others can have just as much conviction as you do about, about, th- about their views and you need to respect that. Right. But, but what, you don't like, have... how does that impact them personally? Like, you know what I mean? Like they need some motivator that's beyond just like, this is the ethical thing to do to have tolerance, you um, know, like, no, I, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm, I'm approaching this from like a, again, like a rational perspective of, okay, this is why humans need to do this. Mm-hmm. But also, personally for me, the, I would encourage people to do this because learning new perspectives and learning where somebody else is coming from is one of the deepest and richest experiences you can have as a human. And it's where you really experience human connection when you see through another's eyes. And also, it's, it's where compassion comes from. A lot of a lot of religions, religious leaders and religious followers talk about love and you know, that's what Jesus Christ taught about love and compassion, love your neighbor. And that's as far as it goes, that we're supposed to love. But let, let, let's stick with the example of Jesus Christ. In the story of, of Jesus Christ, how did he how did he come to have that love and to really become an advocate for humans, for, for all of us individually? How did he do that? I love thinking about this story this way because the way he did that was, you know, in the theology that I grew up with, is he stood in everyone's shoes. He experienced life from their perspective. And he is able to see us by having been with us and seen life from our perspective. And that's what gives him the ability and the power to be our advocate. And I think that's, that's the powerful part. And even though critical thinking was something that was, you know, developed by man in a sense, I think it can be a powerful way to develop those um, qualities that, 
are really important in Christianity and a lot of the wisdom traditions of the world. Absolutely agree. Yeah, Jesus, when you read the Gospels, he went to the marginalized and to the the outcasts. He was homeless himself. And you really get this sense that in order to love and have compassion, he was willing to put himself in the shoes of the lowliest of the low and to see things from their perspective. He died to see things from their perspective in the religious traditions of Christianity. And that's, he, he literally put himself in humanity's place so that he could understand humanity. If you look at, like you said, all the great wisdom traditions, every, every big religious tradition has an aspect of this, that as we learn to love others, that that's, that's the pinnacle of human existence when we love others and the the best way to do that is to understand them if we don't listen to others if we don't or if we only listen in order to respond with our own opinion and why we're right we can never understand them and it's only as we listen to understand as we're open to new ideas and new perspectives and that, that's what critical thinking is. You're willing to be critical of your own biases and your own views just as much as you're critical of anyone else's. As we're willing to do that, to say, I could be wrong. I need to listen to this person and, and understand their experience, their perspective, their worldview. That's, that's where love comes from. As we truly understand someone, that's, that's how we learn to love them. And that's what the world needs more of. I love that. So that's why I'm so passionate about critical thinking and epistemology. I know this is an important thing in the world, and I'm trying to do my part to get it out there. That's that's all. I think that's amazing. That's why I, you know, when you when you first start hearing about this and... I think it's easy to just say, I know some people would just say, you know, this is the philosophies of men. <laughs> I know others that would just kind of disregard it as unimportant or, um, you know, to them in their lives or others who would say that it's just developed by elite philosophers that don't really have any bearing on, on real life and and it doesn't add a lot of value to our current societies or to the real world. Like I've, I've heard people say that before. And hearing that history, how the world progressed and was able to get advanced beyond eras of major conflict. We don't live in a world where we can just put each other to death. We don't live in a world where every country is wanting to go to war and trying to fight to the death for what we believe. And some people still view that as a noble thing, but I think it's way more noble 
to be able to see the world from someone else's perspective and to love them despite them having a different opinion. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Buddha taught. That's that, that's what all the great wisdom traditions and religious traditions throughout the world have that thread in common. That's what they taught. Even for, for, for Christians, look at, look at the core message of your theology. It's that humans existed in a naive, but the thinking perf- thought they were in a perfect state in the Garden of Eden. There was a fall from the Garden of Eden by gaining knowledge of good and evil, two different perspectives, and then a redemption that was brought about because of love, love of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that describe kind of this pattern? That, that This is why I'm... It's not just because it makes rational sense to me, but this is also why I'm drawn to this idea of critical thinking and the, the all of these these ideas from... Locke and Descartes, and is this really seems to line up to me with those greatest traditions of this story of human beings are in a state of naivety. Then there's a gaining of knowledge that's painful, and it's a fall because all of a sudden our previous worldviews of that was very safe and comfortable is gone. And we have to fight through all the difficulties of recognizing it's not as simple as I thought it was. And then redemption comes as we learn these other perspectives and we learn to love others and we see ourselves in others. And that's where redemption comes is, is love. It's, it's, it's the pattern of Christianity. It's, it's, it's in the, Dhammapada, like it's in Buddhism, like it's, there's versions of it in Islam, like it's, it's in the great religions of the world. And it's the ultimate aim of humanity. Yeah, I think, I think one way to think of this is a lot of time in Christianity, like Justin was talking about, um, a lot of times we'll talk about this, we'll talk about, you know, how we need to love others and to have charity for others. And we kind of stop there. And if it helps you, this think of this as a way to do that. This is a practical application for you to learn to love other people. We can't love someone else without understanding them. And like, we I just think can't. that's something that Jesus Christ taught us. Yeah. And another thing he taught us was not to judge others. That's why, and, that's why he says, love your neighbor as yourself as you learn to see yourself in your neighbor, like that's when you truly love them. Right. Yeah. And about, and about judging others, you know, if we're, if we're looking at other people and we're judging them as incorrect or judging them as wrong before we even give them a chance, before we give their ideas a chance, you know, then that, that hinders our ability to put ourselves in their shoes. It hinders our ability to look at ourselves and say, where could I improve my knowledge and my understanding and my compassion? If we put up that wall of judgment initially, that halts our growth. And I think that's a main reason. It's not just that it's immoral to judge others. 
It's that it impedes your ability to become better and to love. You stay in that Garden of Eden. Yep. And you never progress. Right. Even though it's very nice and comfortable there. <laughs> I think... I think a lot of times Eve gets a bad rap in that story, you know, and throughout history. I think a lot of misogyny comes from this story, actually. Eve, in the tradition, was the one to be beguiled and to fall. But those lessons that I get from Eve is that she was brave enough. She saw the need to improve herself and to gain a new perspective. And she was brave enough to take a bold leap. And um, you said it earlier in this conversation, as I was talking about, you know, exposing yourself to new perspectives, like you were like, that sounds scary. Mm -hmm. It is. And yeah, I like how you said that Eve was brave enough to make that leap and try. Yep. Yep. As we're talking about these things too, I think a lot of times people are thinking, you know, like, well, I don't want to give up my religious traditions. Um, I don't want to give up my political positions. And I guess what we're saying here is that you don't have to. You can find, like as we're discussing here, you can find just as much value in these things, whether you take them literally or not, because there is value to be had in them. Yep. They're They're meaningful. That's why they've endured for so long. Exactly. Even if they were, you know, quote unquote true, but human beings found no connection to them and no meaning in them, they would have, they would have gone away a long time ago. There are plenty of things that have been true in reality and no one remembers them today. Yep. I mean, some real things happened to me last weekend. Do I remember them? No, I don't. (laughs) 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 We only keep, we only retain what's important. But yeah, I think, I think as you're thinking about critical thinking, if this sounds like a scary thing to you, if you're afraid of losing, you know, losing everything, doing what Descartes did and lose all meaning in the things that have been so important to you, I don't think you need to have that perspective of this. I think that's like, it's not an either or. What logical fallacy is that called? A false dichotomy. A false dichotomy. Yeah. Which is basically, it's either this or it's that. And that's not the case. Like, there's some nuance here. And you can, you can mesh your religion. And you can mesh your politics. And you can mesh your critical thinking all together to create symbiotic relationships that make you a well-rounded and healthy and compassionate and loving person. And still have a moral system and beliefs that are important to you. Absolutely. Yep. I think this this whole framework is compatible with mm-hmm. the best aspects of religion. Yep. Yeah. And, so uh, if that's been something that's scaring you, I don't think that needs to be something that's terrifying. Yeah. I'm glad you added that. Yeah. It was good. Well, cool. Good discussion. Thanks for um, listening. Um, uh, so next time, are we going to, are you going to talk about, okay, so we talked about the history of critical thinking. We talked about, you know, why it's important, how it can impact your life um, in positive ways. 
why it's important as a society for adopt for us to adopt these epistemological principles. So are you going to talk about like some ways that we can apply this? Yeah. Yeah. Next time we'll, we'll talk about some practical ways and tools to actually use critical thinking in your life. And that's what this whole podcast is about, right? It's about examples of critical thinking with discussions with other people, helping them figure out how to think critically through their beliefs. It's about teaching you tools of critical thinking to help you learn how to implement those, right? Yep. That's the plan. Cool. I think that's a pretty good plan. I think it's important. Hopefully you can see why it's important and why, how it can help you. Yep. I, I hope that that's been clearly communicated today of why it matters. So cool. Boom. Mic drop. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. If you would be interested in coming on the podcast and uh, exploring some of your, your deeply held beliefs and we can examine those together and maybe ask some critical thinking kinds of questions, go ahead and send me an email at theatetuspodcast at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-A-E-T-E-T-U-S podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Thanks for coming on, Hannah. You've been an amazing co-host. We'll have to do this again. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks everybody. Time.